Hey there, it's Kathy. I just wanted to let you know that you can listen to History of the 90s early and ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. In the summer of 1986, Lorne Michaels, the creator and executive producer of Saturday Night Live, traveled to Toronto to watch a comedy troupe with a devoted cult following. The five-man group was a weekly staple at the Rivoli Club on Toronto's trendy Queen Street. For two years, they'd performed every Monday night and quickly became local comedy legends, known for their absurd and irreverent sketches that often involved cross-dressing and surreal scenarios. On the night Michaels came to see them, an unknown woman burst onto the stage and stood on her head, shouting, Lorne Michaels, pick me! I'd be very funny on your show! Without missing a beat, a troop member responded, Get off the stage! This is our show! I'm Kathy Kinzora, and this is History of the 90s, a podcast about a decade that changed the world. On this episode, we're looking back at a time when television networks realized sketch comedy was cheaper and easier to make than sitcoms, leading to a flood of edgy and hilarious shows like Kids in the Hall, Mad TV, and Mr. Show. This is the golden age of sketch comedy. Despite the rude interruption during their show, the kids in the hall impressed Lorne Michaels. In fact, a few weeks after seeing the troupe perform in Toronto, he told the five comedians he wanted to develop a show with them. Using his industry connections, Michaels quickly negotiated an hour-long HBO special for $400,000, which would hopefully lead to a permanent TV series for kids in the hall. The group, made up of Mark McKinney, Bruce McCullough, Kevin McDonald, Dave Foley, and Scott Thompson, were mostly influenced by Monty Python and SCTV. Their name came from the days of radio, when aspiring writers would line the hall outside Jack Benny's studio. He was one of the leading entertainers of the 20th century, and writers would wait for him to emerge so they could pitch him jokes. If he liked a joke, he'd use it and give them five bucks those writers were known as the Kids in the Hall. The Toronto comedy group with the same name were five rough-edged dropouts with boy-next-door looks. But they weren't actually kids. They were all between the ages of 25 and 30 and had definitely paid their dues on stage. But they didn't really know much about TV. So to get ready for the special, Michael sent the kids to a kind of TV comedy boot camp. The troupe flew from Toronto to New York City, where they were set up with apartments and office space. Michaels, who considered himself a benevolent father for up-and-coming comedians, even gave them $150 in weekly spending money. In return, the kids spent their days working on a script for the HBO show, while nights were spent on stage at Caroline's Comedy Club honing their craft. Finally, after five months in New York, the kids flew back to Toronto, where they filmed the special. Produced by Canada's public broadcaster, CBC, it aired on HBO and CBC in the summer of 1988. 
Along with the unforgettable theme music by the Canadian rock band Shadowy Men on a Shadowy Planet, the special included many of their soon-to-be classic characters, like the Head Crusher and Obnoxious Cabbage Head. Well, thank you very much for a wonderful evening. I had a lovely time. Good night. <laughs> so are you going to sleep with me or what? I'm not going to sleep with you. I haven't thought about sleeping with you, actually. It's because I have a cabbage for a hat, isn't it? Reviews called the special fresh and exciting. And sure, some thought it was weird, but most praised the kids for being bold, daring, and experimental. The ultimate compliment came from Rolling Stone magazine, which called the kids five guys who may change the face of comedy. The special led to a 20-episode first season of a TV show that premiered in the fall of 1989. In Canada, it ran on CBC Thursdays at 9.30, while in the U.S., a raunchier version aired on HBO at midnight. During season one, the kids perfected more of their classic sketches, including 30 Helens and Buddy Cole. People make fun of me because I lisp. Really? Such a lot of fuss over a few extra S's. <laughs> Buddy is an outspoken gay man who was unafraid to offer his opinion on the most provocative topics. He was played by Scott Thompson, who is also gay. Thompson said he came up with the character after falling in love with a guy who was very much like Buddy, an effeminate man with a wicked wit. He told CBC in 2021 that playing Buddy during a time when he was still doing everything in his power to hide his own gayness was a pretty bold move. Comedian and author Jason Klom, whose newest book, We're Not Worthy, takes an in-depth look at 90s TV sketch comedy, says Thompson felt that being out wasn't possible at the time. But once he sort of once they sort of realized they could do sketches that were gay, it not only became, I think, freeing for him, but freeing for the group because they could make gay jokes without them being jokes uh, at the expense of people who were gay. But the gay jokes were all so they were all filtered through Scott. They were all filtered through these guys uh, loving knowledge of Scott. So none of it was hateful. Regardless, Buddy Cole did receive some backlash, not just from people offended by a gay character on TV, but also from gay activists who felt Buddy played into dangerous and demeaning stereotypes. The kids were also fearless when it came to playing women. But Dave Foley told The Hollywood Reporter in 2015 that they made it a rule not to go for a laugh with the hair, makeup, or wardrobe. Instead, the comedy flowed out of smartly observed characters, like Kathy with a C and Kathy with a K, two gossiping secretaries, and Melanie, a gawky hormonal teenager. Nick Marks, an associate professor of film and media studies at Colorado State University, says he was blown away by Kids in the Hall when he first saw it. I couldn't believe something so off-kilter and uh, avant-garde was, you know, so popular uh, up north above me. I was especially um, excited by their play with gender and identity, so the role that cross-dressing played across their comedy was something always very kind of new and exciting, and it never felt like, um, oh, a kind of laughing at women or, or queer folks. It was always in a spirit of solidarity with, with other identities in, in their show. As season one drew to a close, HBO had not confirmed if they were going to renew Kids in the Hall for a second season. Then something incredibly unexpected happened to seal the deal. 
In January 1990, Mark McKinney won Best Actor at the 11th Annual Cable Ace Awards, beating out Gary Shandling. The now-defunct award ceremony was kind of like the Emmys, but just for cable TV. And winning a trophy was a big deal for McKinney and the show. Most importantly, it helped the kids secure a second season with another 20 episodes. The Kids in the Hall ran on CBC as well as HBO and later CBS for a total of five seasons, finally signing off in April 1995. By then, the grind of the show had exhausted members of the troupe, and they needed a break. Nick Mark says people underestimate how demanding a sketch show can be. It, it, it constantly demands newness and regeneration. So you don't have the return to those stable recurring scenarios like you do in a sitcom where you can kind of start at a baseline of Jim and Pam at the office again and they're playing a prank on Dwight. There's some of that built into a lot of sketch shows, but very often, um, you know, sketches are entirely new universes on, unto themselves with each new sketch. And so it can be creatively exhausting for uh, um, writers, performers to have to generate all that new material past just a couple of seasons. In the final episode of Kids in the Hall, the five guys get buried alive in a mass grave. That's when show writer Paul Bellini, who often wandered onto sketches in just a towel, said his very first words. Thank God that's finally over. But just because the TV show was over, it didn't mean the kids were breaking up. Their plan was to reconvene every couple of years and make a movie, in the model of Monty Python. But immediately after the show ended, Dave Foley became a breakout star of the hilarious sitcom News Radio, which also included Phil Hartman, Stephen Root, and Andy Dick. For whatever reason, Foley's success did not sit well with the rest of the guys, and it created a massive rift between them. Author Jason Klom says that by the time they got together to make their first movie, Brain Candy, tensions were running extremely high. And yeah, so because of that, there was just a lot of bitterness, even between him and Kevin, who they were best friends. Even they hated each other and didn't talk to each other on the set of Brain Candy, which is why the movie feels weird. Brain Candy is a darkly comedic cautionary tale about a Prozac-like wonder drug that sends its depressive patients into glee comas. It wasn't the slapstick comedy Paramount Pictures thought it would be. And when Brain Candy opened in April 1996, it bombed at the box office. In a now legendary review, Roger Ebert said, I did not laugh once. This movie was awful, dreadful, terrible, stupid, idiotic, unfunny, labored, forced, painful, and bad. Today, for devoted fans of Kids in the Hall, it's remembered as a cult classic. But for the five guys that made it, it doesn't stir up fond memories. Making Brain Candy tore them apart. And by the end of filming, the kids in the hall were no more. But eventually, wounds began to heal over, thanks to a bit of time and space. Plus, it didn't hurt that during that time when they weren't talking, the kids in the hall had become hugely popular with a new generation of fans, mostly college-age viewers who religiously watched reruns of the show on Comedy Central. So four years later, in 2000, the kids reconciled with Foley and went on a warmly received North American stage tour. Then there was another tour in 2008 and a miniseries, Death Comes to Town, released in 2010. All of it culminated in a grand return in May 2022, when an eight-episode reboot of Kids in the Hall premiered on Amazon Prime, which was warmly received by fans and critics. 
but Amazon has yet to announce if there will be another season. Before we check out some of the other sketch comedy shows from the 90s, I want to point out that we won't be covering In Living Color because we did an episode entirely devoted to that innovative show back in July 2022. So feel free to check that out if you haven't already. And we're also going to leave out Saturday Night Live because that show extends well beyond the 1990s. But SNL does play a role in the creation of the next show we're going to talk about. In 1987, Saturday Night Live aired a short film parody made by Ben Stiller. Stiller, who was born into a showbiz family, his parents are the comedy team of Anne Mira and Jerry Stiller, created a short film while he was acting in a Broadway show. He and the other cast members from the play starred in a parody called The Hustler of Money, which was a hilarious take on the movie The Color of Money. The parody featured actor John Mahoney as Paul Newman, while Stiller did a wicked impersonation of Tom Cruise. Kid, when are you gonna get it? Hey, Andy, what do you want from me, huh? I'm a bowler, Eddie. I'm a bully, you know? And you know what? I'm an animal! Somehow, the short ended up in the hands of Lorne Michaels, who loved it. So much so that he aired it on an episode of SNL. A couple of years later, in 1989, Michaels cast Stiller as an SNL regular, but after appearing on only four episodes, Stiller quit. You see, he wanted to make more content like The Hustler of Money, pre-taped video parodies, instead of creating live characters. But that wasn't the direction Michaels wanted to go at the time. So in 1990, Stiller took his ambition and talent to MTV which was embarking on its first major programming shift toward original content. I'm Ben Stiller, the star of The Ben Stiller Show, part of MTV's new Comedy at 7 weeknight lineup. We're on Thursday nights. It's a show where I do a whole thing with all these different characters, Eddie Munster, Tom Cruise, Bono. It's funny, right? It's funny. Author Jason Klom said Stiller's show on MTV combined scripted comedy sketches with music videos, something the cable channel called VidCom. Parodies and directing were a thing he knew he wanted to do. And so on MTV... That's what they sort of would do in between when they threw to videos. Um, one whole episode is him becoming obsessed with becoming a musician so that he can do his very bad Bono impression. It's him and uh, Jeff Kahn, who was his co-writer. He was also his co-host on the show. They had no money to do a show, as MTV always was. That was just always the situation at MTV. In fact, the lack of budget even made it into one of their sketches, which helped Stiller keep the show going after it was canceled by MTV following just six episodes. So they eventually did an episode called We're Going to, basically called We're Going to Fox because we can get more money there. And that was a joke. But they did send that tape to Fox and within a couple of years had a Ben Stiller show at Fox. And that is the show that I think most people think about and remember. Um, it's really hard to find the, the, the first series anywhere at all. At Fox, the Ben Stiller show was revamped and transformed into a larger scale version of what aired on MTV. Associate Professor Nick Marks says networks like Fox were trying to make a name for themselves and recognize that sketch comedy might be the answer. The 90s also has this weird convergence of things happening in television itself, where the sketch format is very prized by networks like MTV, Comedy Central, and a few others who use sketch shows to kind of rebrand or to declare themselves as the home of cool comedy in an increasingly cluttered television marketplace. Jeff Kahn stayed on with Stiller as his writing partner, and they were joined by Judd Apatow. 
The rest of the creative team was a veritable who's who of 90s alt comedy, including Janine Garofalo, Bob Odenkirk, David Cross, and Andy Dick. When The Ben Stiller Show debuted on Fox in September 1992, it was hip, fresh, and completely novel for the time. It didn't have a studio audience and was actually the first ever sketch series on Fox not to use a laugh track, a trend that would continue on other sketch shows that followed. The series defied conventional satire with sketches that parodied both pop culture and traditional joke structures with a uniquely playful point of view. Some of the great ones include a parody of 90210 called Melrose Heights 912102426 and a cops parody set in ancient Egypt. You get the idea. There were also about a hundred different skits poking fun at rock stars like Bono and Bruce Springsteen. Hey kids, it's time for counting with Bruce Springsteen. With guest appearances by Bobcat Goldthwaite, Dennis Miller, Gary Shandling, and music by Frank Zappa's son Dweezil, you can't find a more 90s show. Today, it's considered a defining influence on modern sketch comedy. But sadly, it didn't receive that kind of appreciation when it was on the air. Fox cancelled the show after just one season because of bad ratings. Really bad. The Ben Stiller show came in dead last. Despite rave reviews from critics and the adoration from a handful of followers, the general public barely took notice of the Ben Stiller show. But Stiller and his team actually got the last laugh. A couple of months after getting axed at Fox, they won the Emmy for Outstanding Writing in a Variety or Music Program, beating out Late Night with David Letterman and Saturday Night Live. We all worked really hard on the show. Not many of you probably know who the hell we are. <laughs> but uh, it was a great opportunity. I want to thank... Uh, all of our agents, our mothers, our fathers, our girlfriends, our wives. Uh, this, I can't believe I'm here. This is great. Uh, Judd, Molly Madden, uh, Jimmy Miller, everybody who made this possible, thank you. And the Fox Network, I think you missed, you know, something here. I mean, anyway, okay, thank you. Good night. Of course, the series was just the beginning for Ben Stiller and the writers and actors who collaborated with him on the show. In fact, two of them launched their own comedy sketch show just a couple of years later. After working together on The Ben Stiller Show, Bob Odenkirk and David Cross realized they had a similar stand-up sensibility. They both enjoyed dark humor that bordered on absurd and had a penchant for being melodramatic. So they put together a club act, that caught the attention of legendary Hollywood agent and manager Bernie Brillstein. He championed the pair to HBO. The cable channel was impressed too and gave them a series, which debuted November 3rd, 1995. Okay, the objective is to infiltrate the homes of America. We infiltrate Junior in his basement room while he's smoking a cigarette. How are we gonna do it? We're gonna get in through the television set. When no one's looking. The least watched time ever. A busy work night when everybody's sleeping. Mondays at midnight. Better yet, we're gonna do it on HBO. Ha <laughs> <laughs> ha! Mr. Show, Mondays at midnight. Why would you put a show on Monday at midnight? Exactly! 
Mr. Show with Bob and David brought new momentum, creativity, and a sense of anarchy to the American comedy landscape, becoming synonymous with absurdist sketch comedy. Each episode threads together live and pre-taped sketches with a Monty Python-esque stream-of-consciousness transitions. The comedy was irreverent and sometimes viciously subversive. To truly enjoy Mr. Show, you had to see the humor in Satanism, hermaphrodites, after-school specials about mentally challenged parents, and the KKK. In this sketch, members of the heavy metal band Titanica visit a fan in the hospital. Man, I have all your albums. <laughs> You're my favorite fan. I mean, I played your song Try Suicide right before I tried suicide. Yeah, your f parents sued us. <laughs> yeah, but you guys won. That's excellent. Not every sketch on Mr. Show is remembered as a classic. But according to Nick Marks, that's what sketch comedy is all about. There's a high ceiling, low floor potential, right? It can either be the greatest thing ever or a kind of train wreck that makes you want to look away. Mr. Show got popular in a kind of unconventional way, but for the 90s, it wasn't completely uncommon. Viewers who had HBO taped Mr. Show for people who didn't. And many didn't, because fans of the series were typically in college or in their 20s. The VHS tapes were passed around and enjoyed by an ever-growing legion of devoted followers. In total, Mr. Show ran for four seasons on HBO. The last episode aired December 28, 1998. Its legacy is still felt today, though, having influenced a whole generation of alternative comedians and comedy nerds. Bob Odenkirk, of course, went on to portray Saul Goodman in Breaking Bad and then Better Call Saul, while David Cross played the hilarious Tobias on Arrested Development. And in 2015, the duo reunited for a Netflix series called With Bob and David, which Odenkirk described as a lighter, less complex version of Mr. Show. The next sketch show we're talking about has its roots in 1988 when 11 students at New York University formed an alt-comedy group to compete against the school's official troupe. And appropriately, they called themselves the New Group. The students came to NYU with stars in their eyes from all over the country, New York, Tennessee, Wisconsin, and Florida. Most were theater majors, and all but one were male. Through what alum David Wayne calls a lucky chain of events, the group scored a deal with MTV changed their name to The State, and in January 1994, launched a sketch comedy series that was both silly and irreverent. Nothing was off limits on The State, which even bashed its parent network with parodies of MTV VJs and shows like Cindy Crawford's House of Style and The Real World. And author Jason Klom says they were constantly pushing back against their network bosses who wanted them to follow the mold of other sketch comedy shows. Carrie Kenny Silver, who was the only woman in a group of 11, uh, 10 dudes and her, told me that they had this one character uh, named Louie and MTV said, look, we need the SNL thing. We need we need characters. We need catchphrases. And she said, OK, you want a ca character with a catchphrase? Here's a guy whose catchphrase is I want to dip my balls in it. And uh, ironically enough, people caught it caught on and it was the thing that was most memorable thank god it never turned into a movie or anything but um they were just they're so genuinely re rebellious it was perfect for mtv and they also rebelled against mtv as much as they possibly could louis wasn't the only memorable character from the state there was also captain monterey jack 
Michael Showalter's Rebel Without a Cause character, Doug, and Barry and LaVon, the velvet-clad funksters who fall in love with $240 worth of pudding. Now, we could have bought $100 worth of pudding, and that would have been a lot of pudding. Oh, yeah. But we had to go all the way, baby. All the way home. Uh-huh. With $200. And $40. With the pudding. With the pudding. Oh, yeah. While the state was on the air, the majority of critics seemed to hate the series. The New York Post said every MTV exec who gave thumbs up to the state should be given a urine test. And the paper gave the show a negative two stars. But like Mr. Show, it was a hit with college kids and others in their 20s, the exact demographic MTV was aiming for. In fact, the half-hour show, which ran at 11 p.m. on Saturdays, quickly became as popular as the channel's other big shows like Beavis and Butthead and The Real World. The network ended up losing the series, though, in 1995 after four seasons. Sure, MTV had given them free reign to create deranged characters like Inbred Brothers, Blueberry Johnson, and the Bearded Men of Space Station Eleven, but the cable channel paid them ludicrously low salaries and forced them to file for unemployment between seasons. So when CBS made them a better offer, the 11 members of the state jumped at the chance. To test the water, CBS aired the state's 43rd annual Halloween special on October 27, 1995 at 10 p.m. It's the Halloween special, we're decking the halls. We're digging our own graves and we're waxing our balls. Well, they got that right. CBS cut ties with the state immediately following the Halloween special. Author Jason Klom explains why. I don't think CBS knew what they signed up for. It's typical of, of networks to have less of an idea of what they have signed up for. And CBS is too traditional for the filth. And like I say, filth, like they, they wouldn't really even get that blue, but it too weird and too dangerous for network TV. It does. It, it made it was a terrible fit. There was no way that was ever going to work. When CBS dropped the state, that was the end of the 11 member comedy troupe. That is until August 2023, when eight members reunited for a 30th anniversary show in Denver, aptly called the Breakin' Hearts and Dippin' Balls Tour. Since the 90s, most members of the state have gone on to big careers, including Thomas Lennon and Ben Garant, who created and starred in Reno 911 along with Carrie Kenny Silver. And David Wayne, who has made several films, including Wet Hot American Summer, which he co-wrote with Michael Showalter. Nick Marks says it's common for sketch shows to be a stepping stone for comedians and actors. The very premise of the format oftentimes is to kind of land on the scene with a great amount of noise and chaos, right? A stand-up comedian who's hot at the moment or this up-and-coming sketch troupe make a, a two or three season run that can often be kind of controversial and draw a lot of attention and maybe turn some viewers off and then usually go on to different projects. CBS wasn't the only network that tried to jump on the sketch comedy wave in the 90s. In March 1996, ABC introduced The Dana Carvey Show, starring one of SNL's most talented alumni. And they did so right smack dab in the middle of primetime on Thursday nights immediately following the network's hit sitcom Home Improvement. 
When the show debuted, viewers got quite a shock. The first sketch featured Carvey as U.S. President Bill Clinton breastfeeding a baby as well as puppies and a kitten from a bunch of fake nipples. Just drink up there, little baby. I'd like to see Steve Forbes do this. I invite the American people to suckle on my teats. It was bizarre, and not what would normally run after a family-oriented sitcom like Home Improvement. Ted Harbert, the ABC executive who greenlit the Dana Carvey show, said in a recent documentary that he was looking at real-time ratings that night. And in the first few minutes, the show lost millions of Home Improvement viewers who had hung around to check it out. He said, quote, people ran for the remotes. Carvey was coming off an unprecedented run on Saturday Night Live, and with his many popular characters like Church Lady, Garth, Hans, and George Bush, he was a fan favorite. Joining Carvey on the new show was essentially an army of future comedy stars, including Robert Smigel, Louis C.K., Charlie Kaufman, Stephen Colbert, and Steve Carell. Together, they created some classic comedy sketches, including waiters who are nauseated by food, skinheads from Maine, and leftover Beatles memories. I remember me first Snickers bar in America. You know, I bit into it. And there was these peanuts in there. I couldn't bloody believe it. And I took another bite, right? And you can't believe how many peanuts were in there. It was like there was a little man on the other end feeding peanuts into the candy bar I was eating. And I called John over. I said, John, look at this. It's all packed with peanuts. What's all that, right? And John says, well, you know, John, you know. He says, well, of course, you bullet. That's what the rapper says, you know, packed with peanuts. The Dana Carvey Show was also where we were first introduced to the ambiguously gay duo, an animated short later revived by Robert Smigel to greater fame on SNL that features two superhero special friends who drive a flesh-colored car shaped like a penis. With this winning team, the show should have been a massive hit, but it was doomed from that very first breastfeeding sketch. Advertisers flipped out, and the network, ABC, which thought it was getting something more akin to The Carol Burnett Show, started to take a new interest in just what the weirdos they had hired were up to. The second episode began by referring to the calamity of the previous week, but rather than offer an apology, the show's creators did what comedians do. They doubled down and became oppositional and openly hostile to the people paying the bills. The show mocked the advertisers, and Smigel appeared in a reoccurring segment as a network executive demanding that the show become more appealing. The whole thing was way too much for ABC, which cancelled the series after seven episodes in April 1996. In fact, the network even refused to air a final completed episode, instead replacing it with a rerun of Coach. Since then, The Dana Carvey Show has gained a cult following and it's now widely recognized for having one of the greatest writing rooms in the history of television. While many of the sketch comedy shows that launched in the 90s didn't last very long, there was one that had incredible staying power. Mad TV debuted on the Fox network on October 14, 1995, and ran on the network for an impressive 14 seasons before it was canceled in 2009. It first came to life when TV producer David Salzman and music mogul Quincy Jones bought the rights to the long-running comedy publication Mad Magazine. Their production company, QDE, was behind The Fresh Prince of Bel-Air, and they wanted to make a sketch show that would capture some of the radical spirit of the gleefully irreverent Mad Magazine 
while maybe stealing some of the viewers from Saturday Night Live. To get things off the ground, they approached In Living Color writers Fax Barr and Adam Small, who were out of work after the cancellation of that show in 1994. Together, they created a pilot for Mad TV, which included a parody of Forrest Gump and Pulp Fiction called Gump Fiction. Okay. You know what they call shrimp in France? Quarter pounder with cheese. No. A royale with cheese. No. Quarter pounder royale with cheese. No. Filet shrimp royale. No. Shrimp McNugget royale. No. Hamburger Royale Shrimp. No. TV featured a young cast of mostly unknowns from the world of stand-up and improv. But the writer's room was packed with comedy sketch veterans from The Ben Stiller Show, Kids in the Hall, and Saturday Night Live. The result was a show that was more diverse than SNL, with humor that was broader, ruder, and less intellectual, which was just perfect for the younger audience they were aiming for. Mad TV aired on Fox at 11 p.m. on Saturdays, overlapping with Saturday Night Live, which at the time was suffering one of its worst-ever slumps. Back then, TV pundits speculated that Mad TV had the potential to take the comedy helm from SNL. That, of course, didn't happen for a variety of reasons, including neglect. Fox shortchanged the show when it came to marketing and overall budget. And as a result, Mad TV was never able to get out from under the SNL shadow. But it lasted 14 years, and during that time on the air, it produced a lengthy list of iconic characters, including Jovan, a.k.a. the craziest hell guy, Ms. Swan, and the Vancombe Lady. It also helped kickstart the careers of several big fish in today's comedy pond, everyone from Ike Barinholtz and Patton Oswalt to Keegan-Michael Key and Jordan Peele. In 2016, The CW launched a reboot of Mad TV with an all-new cast, along with some alumni, but it was cancelled after one season. The golden age of sketch comedy that dominated the 90s didn't last forever. By the end of the decade, networks had turned away from the genre, focusing their attention on something even cheaper to make, reality TV. But that didn't mean comedians stopped making sketches. They just turned to the internet, specifically YouTube, which arrived in 2005 and led to a boom in viral comedy videos. Suddenly, a comedian didn't have to be on Saturday Night Live to have a sketch seen by thousands of people, sometimes even millions. Still, there have been some notable sketch shows on TV in the 2000s, including The Dave Chappelle Show, Inside Amy Schumer, and Portlandia as well as the more recent I Think You Should Leave on Netflix and a Black Lady Sketch Show on HBO. Today, no surprise, TikTok is playing a key role in the next generation of sketch comedy. In 2022, the social media platform even assembled a cast of TikTokers to star in its first fully produced sketch comedy on TikTok Live. Creators of the series called Stapleview say it's like SNL TikTok. Thanks for joining me for this look back at some great sketch comedy from the 90s. I am aware that there are lots of shows that I didn't mention, including Viva Variety, Exit 57, and House of Buggin'. Hey, even Jenny McCarthy had a really bad sketch show. So I would like to know what your favorite shows were. You can reach out to me on social media. You can find History of the 90s on Instagram at That90s Podcast and on Facebook at 1990s History. 
Thanks to both of my guests. Jason Klom has a brand new book out on sketch comedy called We're Not Worthy, From In Living Color to Mr. Show, How 90 Sketch TV Changed the Face of Comedy. And Nick Marks has written several books on comedy, including Sketch Comedy, Identity, Reflexivity, and American Television. I will put info in the show notes about both authors and their books. This episode was written and hosted by me, Kathy Kinzora. Our producer is Dila Velasquez, and sound design and final production is by Rob Johnston. See you next time for more History of the 90s.